0: Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Report podcast. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Our podcast is brought to you by Bell. Since 1935, Bell has been redefining flight. Learn more about its pioneering spirit at bellflight.com. Panic grows as Washington scrambles to avert a first ever U.S. debt default. The Pentagon continues to rebuild depleted weapon stocks. Airbus suggests stretching its A220 jet to replace the A320 and better compete against Boeing's 737. The European jet maker Leonardo, Rheinmetall, Tallis, all disclosed first quarter earnings as BAE Systems issued an interesting trading statement. Air AirCap, and Air Lease report, along with Embraer, HII, Mercury, and Spirit Aerosystems, as well as many others. Joining us today to discuss all of this and more are Dr. Ron Epstein of Bank of America Merrill Lynch, Sash Tuza of the independent equity research firm Agency Partners uh, in London, and Richard Abolafi of the Aerodynamic Advisory Consultancy here in Washington, D.C. Everybody, it wouldn't be Sunday unless we were all together. Thanks so much for joining us.
1: Great to be here, Vaga. wouldn't be a Sunday without it. Thanks very much indeed,
0: Bobby. Always a pleasure.
2: Yeah. Happy Sunday to you and to all. Great to be here.
0: Sash, hope you guys are having a lovely uh, coronation, uh, post-coronation glow over there in the United Kingdom uh, with King Charles III's uh, formal uh, uh, crowning as uh, the the latest in a long line of British monarchs uh, in what was truly a fascinating and ancient ceremony. It was a remarkable day. Ron, uh, start us off. The job of capital markets is to make money no matter what happens. Obviously, now we're uh, teetering on the verge of a potential American debt default, which everybody in Washington is trying, or at least some people in Washington are trying very hard to uh, ignore. Insurance on debt uh, is rising. How is the market moving to indemnify itself from what could be a very, you know, and what are the implications of it, right? If you're somebody who's sitting in the C suite at Lockheed or Boeing, or anywhere else. And and Sash, I'm going to go to you to ask from a European perspective, because Europeans hold a lot of debt, uh, as well, our Asian allies and partners do, as well as our adversaries do as well. But Ron, kind of walk us through what in a real world basis, uh, a debt default will mean for the operation of uh, the defense and aerospace industries. And given the dollar is America's superpower, sort of more broadly, the challenges Uh, that that portends, because at the end of the day, markets are about making money, and and they will bet against the United States if they have to, to protect themselves.
1: So yeah, let's talk about that first, and then we can talk about the litany of earnings and a bunch of other stuff that happened this week. Um, In fact, if you look at the credit default swap prices on U.S. debt, and for those folks that don't know what credit default swaps are, it's essentially insurance on U.S. debt. Um, It's how much you would pay for protection on a, a nominal value of U.S. debt um uh, They've gone up for sure, right? So if you go a year ago, it was about um, about seventeen dollars and fifty cents, and now they're trading around um, seventy-one dollars. But you gotta have to peel back the onion on that. Um, that implies about a one percent chance of default. So if you go back a year ago, it was well below one percent, um, but now you know the market's pricing it maybe a one percent chance of default. So to your question um it doesn't really seem broadly like the market is indemnifying itself against a U.S. default the, the market's pricing in at this point a uh, very very high 99 probability that the U.S. will not default um right. now so if it were to your question that would be a big surprise for folks now as we get closer I mean uh, to a default deadline or however you want to frame it um and we see those probability go those probabilities go up um then that would you know indeed uh suggest that you know the market is uh pricing and something for it but at this point they, they really aren't i mean the question we're getting from investors and and i would imagine maybe sasha seeing the same thing is you know what's this mean for the defense budget and defense spending and so on and so forth so i think the, the broader question is all right you know a you know if it were to happen um, you know what what Broadly, does that mean for interest rates and uh, the stability of the dollar? That, you know, the dollar is sort of the global reserve currency, and and uh, so on and so forth. And that's the that's questions that you know companies yeah, yeah, have to have to ask themselves. Uh, I, I would say the bigger issue that's on the minds of Wall Street is uh, really what's going on with the Fed, uh, more regional bank failures. The flight of capital out of regional banks into money market mutual funds and and other higher yielding things and and yet the um, uh, kind of chaos that that's causing more broadly in the market than than the debt default. Uh, but no doubt, as we get closer to that deadline, the street most likely will become more acutely aware of it.
0: Uh, let me ask you about uh, just sort of the broader interest rate challenge, right? I mean, the Fed indicated that it would do likely, uh, you know, it raised rates again and, and said, we're going to see, you know, wait and see. And then we had very strong employment numbers uh, come out, right? Which then suggests that the Fed might take more action. Is that what you're talking about in terms of sort of the broader sentiment of the market, even though you're not the broader markets analyst for the bank, right? Is that, is that what you mean is,
1: you know, we, we, yeah, we, yeah, we might I think be it's, at the end
0: of this and we're yeah, going to do I more think... of it?
1: I think the 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 market broadly thought with the the breakage that we've already seen in the regional banking sector that the Fed maybe should have stopped and they and they didn't um, so we'll see where that goes. Now to your point with the employment numbers, it's a really sort of mixed up economic environment out there, and I think what we've seen now with enough uh, chaos in the regional banking sector uh, that the Fed really does have to take a little caution, right? Because I mean, ultimately, they, they really don't want to break, break the system. And what what you're seeing happen, I mean, it's really kind of simple. You know, if you've got money in, in a regional bank and um, it's in a CD and you're earning a fraction of a percent, but you can move it over to Apple or you could move it to a money market mutual fund or you, you pick your place and earn 5%, it's kind of a no-brainer. That's what you're going to do. And then that makes many of these regional banks sort of upside down in uh, kind of where they're you know, deposits are relative to their liabilities. Um, and that's a direct byproduct of, you know, interest rates going up really, really quickly. Right. I mean, do you want to you know, earn quote unquote sort of risk free five percent or risk free point 0.1%? So I mean and and it's as simple today as pulling out your smartphone and just swiping um, to, right. to move money around. So I think the market's trying to get its heads around that, where the big money money center banks have, you know, big enough balance sheets and reserves and so on and so forth that it's it's not that disruptive to them. Um, right. but but it really has been for the regional banks.
0: Um Sash, let me uh, bring you into the discussion. Uh obviously um, one of America's super superpowers and what makes America a superpower is the dollar on which its economy and, and global financial uh, heft uh, is based on, people do dollar-based trade, and therefore we can sanction them, which is why China and Russia have been so desperate. Um, and, in, and indeed some Europeans have been desperate to, to establish another reserve currency aside from uh, the dollar, uh, so that they don't end up getting punished uh, for doing trade with places, for example, the United States might not uh, want. Um, Europeans hold a lot of debt. And yet, as we were preparing uh, for this segment, you said that's, you're not really getting a lot of questions about uh, the, the debt default. Um, in the event that there is a debt default uh, in the United States, where, I mean, there is palpable panic on this in, in Washington, even if uh, those who are watching the duck from afar don't see it thrashing uh, as furiously under, under the surface of the water. What are the potential implications of that, right? I mean, as, if you're trying to, th- A, whether people are asking that, and whether they're asking or not, what are the implications, and how do our allies and partners end up getting pulled into uh, a, a castle of our own, right, stupidity of our own making or an accident of our own making?
3: That's a, that's a very multifaceted question. I'll try I'll try to, to slice it up a bit. I mean, we, we've received very, very few calls about this at all um, over the last couple of weeks. I think because the companies that we talk to and the investors we talk to to be very frank, just can't believe you would be this stupid. Um, it's um, I, I was very struck when we were talking just before um, uh, recording here um, by your description of the you know the the, the political setup in Europe in uh, Washington and you know the, uh, the the various sides and how they see the issue of debt. Uh, you're going through what we in the UK went through with Liz Truss's uh, thankfully very short but unthankfully not short enough governments. Uh, last autumn, awesome. which had a very, very similar um, attitude, you know, go around, break things, see how they put themselves together again. Um, but you know, if in doubt, do a lot of damage, do a lot of noise. Um, I'll tell you, from the point of view of the UK, it was an unmitigated disaster. We have um, higher interest rates than we should have. We have higher inflation than we should have. So the interest rates going to have to go uh, higher still. Our government was dealt a you know blow in terms of credibility that will take more than just one very very successful coronation to, uh to sort out um and you know it, it, it's a disastrous process to go down no matter what your narrow political views might be about um you know whether whether governments should be spending um so much money or not uh you just don't want to go there and you're absolutely right uh you know china, china will want a different reserve currency even if Europe or the EU doesn't bear the United States a great deal of ill will or any ill will, the idea that the Euro might become a new reserve currency will fill a huge number of European politicians and bankers with absolutely, uh, you should be under no doubt about that at all. And as you quite rightly point out, once that's done, um, A, you're not gonna get that control, that position that the dollar has got again, back again ever, you know, genius do not go back into bottles um, and uh, you will have lost a huge amount of your um, your politico financial uh, strength for something that probably doesn't matter. Now, let's narrow down to what effect this is ha- having on companies. I'd point to two. One, the small number of companies that have a, U- a heavy US exposure in Europe are probably I wouldn't say they're trading at a discount yet because it's not quite coming through but there is just more investor concern and this is where we do get the the incoming calls a lot um, because of the risk that the defence budget might not not go through as planned and you might have a um, CR or or worse. Um, So all of a sudden companies that have spent one, two, three, four, five decades building their U.S. defense exposure up, and that has served them very, very well. BA Systems, absolutely fantastic example of that, are suddenly realizing that it's a, to put it mildly, a double-edged sword. Um, so U.S. defense exposure is a is a risk because if the budget doesn't go up, um, those earnings might just uh, even flatlining would be good. They'll probably you know uh, hit a really unpleasant air pocket. Uh, so that that's the first thing that investors are. Um you know, I think very, very worried about. The other thing that that companies are starting to talk about, Saab was by far the most clear about this. And they, they, they weren't referencing the US particularly, but they were just saying, look, we need to hold a lot of cash. I mean, Saab has got several billion crowns of cash. And they're saying we need to hold a lot of cash because we simply don't know if the banking system is going to be up to it when we might need financing in the future. And that is a it's a, it's a very broad, but it's also a, a, a thinly disguised way of saying, you know, if the US banking system goes um, uh, very, very badly wrong for all sorts of reasons, but debt default being a major one, um, they don't want to be caught short. And so how does this trickle through to other companies in our sector? It's going to trickle through in terms of capital allocation. Buybacks work when interest rates are low, when there is massive um, the ship buybacks, when there's massive liquidity. You can go to your bank and you can borrow 1 billion, 2 billion, 5 billion, 10 billion to do share buybacks. Um, uh, But if you don't have the confidence in the banking system because of, in particular, the risk of um, uh, of a debt default, you're simply not going to do them. And that has negative implications pretty much every single stock that we cover because they're all Essentially, coming into a cash-generative phase, or they should be. Defense stocks, in particular, but even several ones now are well, they've been, you know, rebuilding their balance sheets. And a lot of calls are, are, are on the um, earnings um, uh, calls about uh, a lot of questions about when, you know, when you going to do a buyback. There was a particular one about Airbus uh, last week. I thought it was fatuous, but um, uh, and actually, so did the CEO. Uh, but you know. It's, Buybacks are insane if you think the banking system, and in particular, if you think the US banking system, is under any sort of pressure. You're just not going to do it. You need to have you know, money not just for a rainy day, but something approximating to Noah's Deluge. Uh, and that changes the investment equation for pretty much every stock we cover, and it's not positive.
0: Uh, it, it, there you go. Uh, a a uh, quite a judgment. It's not positive. Uh, don't put your finger in the uh, electric socket. Uh, you will you will get electrocuted, um, or at least you'll have an uh, unpleasant outcome. Um, Richard, we were talking just before we got started about the implications of uh, all of this and debt, especially on anybody who's in the leasing uh, business. Kind of walk us through your cases for this and and why it has to be an outcome right because i think that at the end of the day there are those who make the case that it's actually not that bad right that we could manage our way through this that those people who say this is sort of an end of the universe event you know it's it's not that bad you know and 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 you have members who tell you well my constituents have told me it won't be that bad if we go over uh, over the fiscal uh, cliff even if anybody who's involved in the ecosystem would say that it's pretty bad and and there's no soft landing from it from from your standpoint what are sort of the other knock-on implications of this that people need to bear in mind uh, especially if they think that
2: this is navigable yeah, I mean, there's just so much we don't know. I mean, obviously, uh, experts are divided, but most say it isn't good uh, per se. You know, just don't do this, please. We'd rather not find out the potential bad implications or second-order effects. You know, people switching to other currencies—obviously, that's a risk. Higher interest rates—that's a risk. From a jetliner financing standpoint, it's also you know interesting. Obviously fund effective rate cracking 5% this week. Uh, That's significant, but, you know, not terribly high. But on the other hand, this is an extremely strong jetliner market. So right now you've got uh, leasers and financiers and everyone else, you know, basically saying not a big deal. But if the market softens for whatever reason, then yes, interest rates become a lot more important. And I have little doubt that this kind of default would have an impact there. So I think, you know, there's so many moving pieces in all of it, particularly the health of jetliner markets, that could make this far worse than it might seem right now. So you might have politicians superficially saying, ah, my constituents saying that all things being equal, things aren't so bad if we do default. uh, That's, you know, a a rather (laughs) superficial assessment of the possibilities here.
0: Uh, In, uh, indeed. Uh, A quick word from our sponsors before we move on. Leonardo DRS and HII sponsor our Global Coverage, General Atomics Aeronautical Systems. Sponsors our Strategy Coverage, Ultra Intelligence and Communications. Sponsors are Command and Control Coverage and GE Aerospace sponsors are Air and uh, Naval uh, Coverage. I want to go into uh, earnings now because we have a lot of companies uh, that reported with a lot of implications. Ron, um, let's walk through the U.S. companies uh, that uh, reported, obviously Spirit Aerosystems. and and Mercury were part of that group, HII is part of that group, uh, but also Embraer uh, and some companies really having a bit of a tough time, um, Spirit getting an infusion of cash from its biggest customer, uh, Boeing, kind of walk us through earnings and what you saw were some of the common uh, themes because uh, there are companies that despite a commercial aviation boom are not doing uh, as well as
1: maybe everybody would like them to. Yeah, we had uh, you know, several companies report this week, so maybe just as a, a good way to talk about it, just kind of cluster them. The aircraft lessors reported, uh, then we had uh, a Spirit and some other suppliers report, uh, Allegheny Technologies and Hamet, they report, throw them in that group. Huntington Ingalls Huntington reported, so did Mercury Systems, uh, and then also Embraer reported. So if you just kind of look at them that way, the aircraft lessors broadly had a, Pretty darn good quarter, as you might expect. I mean, aircraft leasing today is is kind of like how it was, uh, and maybe in some cases still is, you know, car dealerships, right? There's more demand for aircraft today than aircraft are uh, uh, available from the OEMs for all the reasons we've talked about supply chain and whatever else. So if you have a fleet of used aircraft, they're worth more. It's good for the law source. Um, raises their book value, but you can sell those airplanes uh, at a gain if you choose to. And uh, companies like AirCap and Air at least have, uh, and that's kind of offsetting the challenges of uh, rising interest rates, uh, because there's a period of time where um, the rising interest rates can negatively impact the lessors for a less period of time until things normalize. Uh, so anyway, broadly, they were, you know, they had strong quarters. Um, uh, then when you look at the uh, suppliers, um, the, the the metal suppliers, Helmet had a fantastic quarter. Uh, Allegheny's quarter was broadly broadly in line. Uh, they had some weakness, uh, and then Spirit AeroSystems really was sort of the standout because across every vector of the business, they missed the expectations uh, of of the street. Uh, and it wasn't just a seven three seven story. It just wasn't a cash burn story. Just kind of across the business, it just did not go very well. Uh, and when you look at the relative performance uh, on the week, uh, that you know the best performer was Helmet. Yeah, it was down just 70 basis points. The S&P was down 80 basis points. To give you a feel, the big bellwethers, Boeing was down 4%, Lockheed 2, Northrop 3, Raytheon 3, GD3. Three. Allegheny was down about 45 It's a smaller cap, more volatile, not unexpected. Um, Aircap was down a percent and a half, Airly 6, Huntington Ingalls 2, Spirit Aerosystems almost 18 uh, Mercury systems down sixteen percent, and then Embraer fourteen percent. And then on Embraer, it's, it's worth saying it's really the only OEM that reported this week. Um, they just didn't deliver a lot of airplanes. Um, they they burned up a bunch of cash, and it really begs this question: They they have to do something else. You know, their business jet business is doing just fine, but it's not big enough to offset uh, some of the headwinds they're seeing in their in their OEM business.
0: Let, let me just ask I want to go to Sash in a moment because uh, you've got your hand up and you want to comment on the uh, spirit uh, matter and I know Richard does uh, as well but just a, just a question right I mean Wall Street was kind of tough on hiI for expanding its technical services uh, business obviously buying uh, a lion uh, was was seen by some as you know a, a move that was questioned and yet the company is now starting to bring in some business it won a billion dollars uh, last uh, week uh, on a uh, U.S. Air Force's Europe and Africa uh, contract, uh, while at the same time right delivering submarines and aircraft carriers and the like, USS Massachusetts uh, was launched uh, over over the weekend, uh, the latest Virginia-class attack submarine. I mean, from your standpoint, Ron, does this change sort of the street's perspective on the
1: company's sort of fundamental strategy? Um, I, don't, I don't think it does, right? I mean, the, the services business, you know, it, how do I frame this? The, the services business is a very competitive business with a lot of players in it. Um, so you have you know the the usual suspects, uh, Lido, CACI, uh, Booz Allen. You've got engineering and construction companies that have moved into the business. That would be Parsons and uh, KBR. Uh, and now you have, to some extent, the um, the new generation, the Andurals and um, Palantir's of the world. So as you as you move into that space, it's a really competitive space. So. Um, you know, winning some contracts is one thing; doing it profitably and, and really making a go of it is another. And I think it's just, you know, for better or for worse, just one of those things. It's a show me story, so it, you have to con- you will have to continue to see things like that.
0: Um, Sash, from finish up uh, on the point you had to make about Spirited Systems, and then let's look at European earnings. Airbus reporting, Leonardo, Talas, Rheinmetall, uh, busy uh, and action packed uh, returns.
3: Yeah, I mean, just on um, Spirit, and I mean, this is a sort of slightly rhetorical question, but I'd be very interested in everybody's. I'm very struck with Spirit that here is a company which we're all old enough to remember, it effectively came out of Boeing. Um, It is performing in a way that as a subcontractor would make the uh, OEM customer, any OEM customer, put it towards the top end of their risk register. I mean, that's that's what management risk registers are for. and uh, it doesn't seem to be getting any better as, as the quarters go by. I'm very struck by the fact that, in, certainly in Europe, Airbus has not, uh, you know, with any um, great willingness, but has been buying up failing subcontractors. Most of them are tiny; they've been a few tens of millions. But where it's been necessary, they have, you know, bought them up, bought them, bought them up, um, either put their own management in and run them on an arm's length basis. Um, or reintegrated them in some cases uh, back into Airbus. They've just done quite a much bigger deal to buy a forgings business, Aubert Duval, um, in collabor- collaboration with uh, Safran and um, a, uh, a, an aerospace and defense venture capital company, Ticahau. Uh, and that is to basically try to get a, a decent, um, stable source of forgings and castings uh, in Europe. Um, I wonder whether, you know, how much it takes or what, you know, what's the trigger for Boeing to realize that uh, spirit is more trouble outside Boeing than it would be inside uh, and effectively to, well, in Europe, we call it renationalizing. But I realize that's probably politically inappropriate term in in, in the States because it's not getting any better otherwise,
0: is it? And uh, what about uh, all the other companies uh, that uh, posted last week?
3: A lot of companies um, reported common theme supply chain. Is the supply chain actually up to, um, uh, you know, delivery ramps, whether that, that is the civil aerospace delivery ramp, in particular, uh, for Airbus, um, but also the engine companies uh, or, or the, the defence ramp? And charitably, the answer is we don't know, but we hope so. We'll see. Um, we're very, very struck by, with Airbus, the degree to which Airbus is they're putting themselves in a very difficult position. I mean, it's this sort of uh, Janus-headed situation. On the one hand, if you're Airbus, you have to say, we are going to ramp production up, because that's what you've committed to your customers, and that's the basis on which your contracts are priced. And if anything goes wrong uh, and you delay, you lose all those escalation clauses, which tends to be one of the better ways for for, uh, an OEM to, to make money. Yes, on the other hand, the... Uh, the ramp targets that Airbus has set just don't look very credible at the moment um, it you know it looks to us as if Airbus is going to struggle to deliver the 720 aircraft this year that they have targeted basically to to do that they've got to increase uh, deliveries by you know a good 20 25 percent per month for the next nine months um, just to uh, just to hit their current targets that seems to us to be very very difficult indeed so um, and but, but for as long as, on the one hand, they're talking to, to investors and other financial stakeholders, and on the other hand, they're talking to their customers, and they're saying what are becoming mutually contradictory uh, things, they've got a, um, I think they've got they've got a problem, and that's a problem that ultimately reflects uh, directly on um, on management. So our feeling is, Paris Airshow will be interesting, but actually uh, the first half results, which at the end of July are going to be most interesting because at that stage a full quarter will have gone by they will know what their delivery uh, rates are likely to be in second half uh, our bet would be um although we try to slightly more uh, scientifically than just betting that they're going to cut guidance at the um uh in july because they just cannot um deliver that engine companies mtu and, and Safran, um very very interesting because of course they are the major partners respectively for uh pratt and whitney on the geared turbofan and um general electric uh are on the uh leap both engines are having problems um both engines are clearly having um significant problems and uh, the issue for the these companies and i mean mtu is very much a junior partner on the uh, geared turbofan it's got about 18 percent, whereas saffron is you know co uh, co-owner of the cfm business um but the you know the, the problem i think for um mtu is that they are uh very much exposed to whatever pratt and whitney does in terms of trying to sort out um uh gear turbofan reliability but i thought it was very interesting that an indian airline actually went bust this week um go first quite formally go air citing problems with the gear turbofan for the fact they only had half their fleet of a320s in the air at any one time. Um, now, you know, there may be a d- degree of sort of histrionics in that, but um, that's pretty serious stuff. Safran was very, very interesting indeed about LEAP. Um, the LEAP engine is a much more conventional design than the gear turbofan, but um, that means it tends to run way hotter and this shouldn't have come to a surprise to us, but um, Safran was very clear that uh, they, there is a problem with, reduced time on the wing uh, for LEAP. That means there's going to be an extra cost for them and and for GE. And, you know, MTU was saying that um, they don't see CFM being prepared to sign any more um, long-term service agreements at the moment because you're just on the hook for too much risk when you don't know how reliable your engine is. So Airbus says we're not getting the engines, but actually the airlines are saying even when we get the engines, they're unreliable. And uh, we have too many air- aircraft grounded. This is a really low quality uh, production ramp that we're seeing at the moment. In fact, it's not a ramp at all because everybody is struggling. Um, finally on defense, uh, BA systems, most interesting thing about BA systems and this was, this was just a, uh, an annual general meeting trading statement, so no numbers or anything like that. but the most interesting thing for us was that the opening sentence, uh, it just says the AUKUS agreement in March is significant for the company. Now, on the one hand, you could just say, well, no kidding, who would have thunk it? But actually for a company management to say that his annual general meeting means not just it is significant, which it should be because they're gonna be building nuclear submarines for Australia, but it's significant in a time period that shareholders will see, which means low single digit years rather than decades. Um, and what was also interesting, I think, is that uh, BA talked about not just the submarine build, but also the uh, Pillar 2, which is hypersonics and cyber and everything else. And the degree to which that might actually come through even faster than, than the submarines. So that was a that was a very, very interesting um, uh, statement, uh, albeit slightly Delphic. And then finally, Ryan Mattel. Ryan Mattel. is just all about the European defence um, uh, rearmament process. Orders are coming through. Yes, they're coming through in, in fits and starts, but in terms of their ammunition orders, they're actually getting orders now direct from Ukraine for anti-aircraft ammunition, for artillery ammunition, for tank ammunition. Quite a lot of this, we believe, is being paid for by other European nations. That's absolutely fine. Um, but so you're seeing this, the sort of the flywheel effect of an ammunition business really starting to now uh, get some momentum there, um, and that means that. Uh, that's balancing around and much more. In the last couple of years, really, the big driver has been the armoured vehicle and the tactical uh, trucks business, but now the, the ammunition business is becoming a major driver. And remember, they're buying this enormous Spanish company, Expal, uh, which more than doubles their artillery capacity, our ammunition capacity. That we think will be a an absolute game changer for what we expect is going to be a decade-long rearmament. This is not a flash of the pan.
0: It's very interesting on the defense side, especially uh, as the Pentagon itself over the last three months has been stepping up its acquisitions last week of of munitions to rebuild depleted stocks. Uh, We talked about the $5 billion order to uh, Lockheed Martin for guided uh, um, uh, multiple launch rocket systems, GMLRS. Uh, And and last week, uh, we had an order from the Pentagon for about a billion dollars for um, uh, to Raytheon and to Lockheed Martin for the Javelin anti-tank munition, which is one of the world's uh, best such uh, weapons. Uh, Richard, I want to bring you in. A lot, of, a lot of commercial news that everybody discussed from Embraer to Spirit Air Systems. Uh, obviously, you know, on carriers, we had the lessors uh, report uh, as well. And then we had a great Bloomberg or very interesting Bloomberg story that, that um, Airbus is considering stretching the A220 uh, Uh, the Bombardier C-Series product uh, that became the A-Line, A220 line for the company to replace the 320, which was introduced in the mid-1980s to sort of be more effectively compete against uh, Boeing. And what that means for Boeing is Boeing continues to delay its own uh, decision, kind of hit on all of these trends, uh, if you will, really, really briefly.
2: Yeah. Uh, so much to discuss. I'll, I'll try to be brief. But, you know, Spirit is an interesting one. A lot of folks have speculated, Sash Yes did, and uh, uh, John Osprey in The air Current also speculated that the only logical answer is for Boeing to stop with the cash advances and simply to reabsorb the, uh, the company that had been independent for, I believe, 17 years. Um, I'm not so sure I buy that. I mean, yes, in an ideal world, they would. Is that how they wanna use their money? Do they wanna break with the logic of return on net assets, return on invested capital that's driven the company for decades? Of course they should, but they won't. Uh, and of course, you know, they'd be getting rid of Spirit's uh, ability to access capital from other people. Um, so I don't buy it, uh, I'm afraid, even though, boy, it sure seems like it, it might be advisable. Better still, invent a time machine, go back, stop them from spinning off Spirit, that would also be advisable, but alas, not practical. Embraer, I think there are a lot of big questions, you know, everyone is waiting in line patiently or semi patiently for a next generation jetliner with next generation engines um, being disappointed by when they can actually get them. Uh, Yet Embraer has uh, what appears to be spare capacity, judging by deliveries in the last quarter. Why aren't they winning more contests on the basis of availability? Yes, their jets are smaller, but they're really good for their size and uh, solve a lot of problems for people who are wrestling with high fuel bills. Maybe there's a bunch of orders coming. Maybe there's a lot of stuff in the works. Maybe the structural disadvantages of not having the kind of supply chain muscle that Airbus and Boeing enjoy are simply weighing against them. I don't know. One thing to consider, of course, is that since they decided to shelve the E3 new generation turboprop, they haven't exactly been forthcoming about product development plans. So, you know, that doesn't exactly help your competitiveness in the market if you're not willing to talk about the future, see also Boeing. So I think there are a number of issues for them to deal with because it was a, a pretty weak quarter in an otherwise strong market. They've got to address something, hopefully sometime in the coming months, maybe around Paris. They'll have news to announce. It would certainly be good. Um, and then, you know, finally, A22500. Yeah, you know, long awaited development. Um, obviously, this would be well timed for Paris if they were to break cover on that. Obviously, as soon as they do, there's cannibalization of the 320neo. But boy, for maybe half of the 320neo market, this thing should be amazing. More importantly, you know, you look at Boeing's biggest single jetliner in terms of backlog and sales, it's the MAX 8. This thing would appear to be very effective against the MAX 8. Having said that, there's the big question of whether or not they use an A220 that has the same PW1500G engine as on the other models, or whether they brake engine commonality and a different version of the geared turbofan that allows them to get more range. Um, and that's that's a big question. The economics of using a 1500G are awesome, but you don't get the range. Uh, and you certainly don't get the range of the Max 8 or the A320 Neo. It's, it's a big question mark. Um, I would suggest they go for something shorter range. But then again, airlines have this lamentable or inexplicable tendency to pay for range they don't need. So obviously they have to do this in consultation with their customers, but it's going to un- unquestionably be the product development event of the year uh, or next couple of years, unless anybody else does something in that uh, in that space. Uh,
0: interesting uh, indeed. Uh, just a quick note, uh, to our audience to tune into our uh, several weekly podcast, Cavus Ships, hosted by Chris Cavus and Chris Cervello and sponsored by HII and GE Marine, a GE aerospace company who clear the fog on naval and maritime matters. The downlink with Laura Winter, who takes a thoughtful look at all things space and our air power podcast sponsored by GE Aerospace that I uh, co-host with our very own uh, JJ uh, Gertler. Uh, Sash, you have your hand up.
3: Yeah, I think um, Richard's point about What does Airbus do on the engine for the A220 is a really, really interesting one. i would throw this out here. Uh, I think that this is the opportunity for Airbus to open up the engine um, uh, application for the A220. They've clearly been very badly let down by Pratt & Whitney. The company says that quite openly. Um, Pratt & Whitney are... um, They've got gear turbofans. They need to deliver for the A320. That's the mass market product, and clearly gets the priority. But that also that's where the vast majority of the um, uh, that's the uh, vast majority of the installed bases. So when there are aircraft on the ground, they get uh, Pratt has to focus on those A220. The, there's a lot of A220s on the ground. A lot of air, airlines are very very upset about the lack of responsiveness of uh, Pratt to that. That's really widely documented. Um, I think this is the opportunity for Airbus to go to GE and to Rolls and say, "This is going to be a big enough volume aircraft. This is not going to be a niche 1,000 um, uh, units program." Um, the A320, remember? I mean, the a A3, uh, uh, the A320 has got a install. Oh, sorry, it's got a backlog of over 2,000 uh, aircraft um, uh, to start with. I think they go to, to Rolls and GE and say you know make us an offer give it give us a solution so we can have some competition in this market uh, so that we can diversify away from pratt and then they can try to sort out the gear turbofan performance problems the aog problems um and uh, hopefully and then that also improves the pricing because a220 is very expensive to produce because so so much of it was given out of sole source um Uh, contracts by Bombardier when they originally launched the program, and it's a much less profitable program. Actually, for Airbus at the moment, it's unprofitable compared to an
0: A320. Uh, Ron, want to weigh in on this, on what you think this news means potentially, and how seriously to take it, and whether or not it is the competition that it would, if it is the right airplane to replace the 320, and then what Boeing in turn has to do to deal with that. New challenge.
1: Yeah, I mean, this has been speculated now for quite some time, ever since they acquired the program from from Bombardier. That you do, you know, the five hundred version of it. Um, You know, it would have seemingly pretty darn good economics, right? Um So, you know, you enter this thing into the market on top of the seven three seven eight Max, and you'll have a competitor in the market that is new generation across the board, or new materials and everything. Um, uh, Fly by wire and on top of an, an aircraft that is perceived as older generation. Uh, and So it, you've got that. Um, how do you feather it in on, on top of A320 and do it so it's not that disruptive? I mean, I think that's gonna take some thought, but just just throwing this in the market and saying, hey, this is real. Um, and this is something that you know very well could happen. Should an elicited response from the competitor? So, so we'll see. Um, <clears throat> one path Boeing could say, come out, and say, no, 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 this isn't going to happen. It's a joke, blah blah blah. Or they could take it more serious and then you know think about what they're doing on the product development front. Um, who knows? You know, maybe there's things going on inside Boeing that they've just not been very forthcoming about, um, uh, and maybe this would uh, uh, make 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 them. Speak more about that if indeed anything like that's going on. Um, but it it has to kind of raise inside Boeing a red flag around uh oh all right we we really got to start thinking about you know competitive positioning.
0: And uh, Ron, uh, really uh, quickly on the munitions uh, side of things, we have the one billion dollar Javelin order. I mean, what do you what are the expectations? Right? I mean, this is a massive uh, job. You noted before we got started. Uh, even though there's some interest now, the investment from the Pentagon really started ramping up about three months ago, and we've been covering that. From your standpoint, how much more is there to go as the U.S. tries to step up its uh, industrial production game?
1: Yeah, I mean, seemingly, this is just the first inning or two of of the process. Um, I mean, I think that was pretty clear in the budget request in terms of uh, the, the new contracting structure around doing multi-years on munitions and so on and so forth. Um, so you know, on one hand, I think the investment community was expecting to see this sooner, um, right. but I don't think the investment community appreciated kind of all the ducks you have to get in a row internally inside an organization as big as the DOD and the US government to make it all happen. Uh, but now it's really happening. And I think the ultimate question will be, as as the um, industrial base starts to really ramp on this stuff, ultimately what will be the stable production levels for you know a medium period of time? But as you pointed out, I mean we're seeing almost across the board now very large orders across the munition base, particularly for the stuff that got sent to the Ukraine. Um, so um, yeah, I mean I think we're you know like I said I think we're probably in maybe you know the first or second inning of this entire thing.
0: Uh, Thank you for bringing this to a a baseball analogy. Um, Sash, uh, real quick before we part, uh, what do you spot as interesting about where we are in the war and where are we going next? There was, um, you know, obviously the Russians have been bombarding the Ukrainians, the Ukrainians today, a whole bunch of unmanned strikes. Uh, We'll hear more about that from uh, Sam Bendet of the uh, Center for Naval uh, Analyses uh, tomorrow. Uh, Ukraine sending a whole bunch of unmanned uh, strikes across uh, uh, Crimea, uh, at least uh, that's what's been reported. Your your sense on sort of where we are and where we're going next war-wise?
3: Look, politically, we're waiting for a Ukrainian offensive. Um, I do worry about the degree to which expectations of the Ukrainian offensive have built up so high that it's very, very hard for uh, for them to, to, to exceed expectations. Um, but, you know, I hope I'm wrong. The, the Russian line, and there's been a lot talked about how uh, strong the Russian field's defences are because they've d- done what the Russians do really well, which is actually digging these astonishing long trench lines, uh, barbed wire, minefields, dragon's teeth, you know, in multiple layers. That's what the Russians do that very, very well. Um, I mean, as an aside, in the British Army and therefore I suspect in the US Army, attacking uh, de- field defences of a Russian pattern has been the the test exam at the end of every commander's course because it's the hardest thing to do. It requires really, really good combined arms um, uh, integration and uh, and tactic and and command. Um, one thing that I think people tend to slightly forget about these astonishing uh, Russian defences is that they are so big. It's going to be very, very hard indeed for them to man them to the uh, you know to the strength that is required for the whole uh, distance along. They clearly hope to be able to see a Ukrainian offensive developing before it does, and hence to move reserves to to, to man the defences. But if they don't, or if the Ukrainians do what they've been very good at doing so far, which is deception, then it may well, you know, the Russians may not get to their, get to their trenches in time. Um, from a Western point of view, we would clearly hope that that's the outcome. The um, the, the drone strike or, you know, the, the UAV strikes are, are very, very interesting. Um, to some extent, this is trying to show the Russians that, you know, you, you can do it, we can do it too. But I think there's a much broader issue going on here, which is that the Ukrainians are starting to show to Russia that, Crimea is not going to be tenable in a military sense, that um, once they get close enough to to Crimea that they can block the Kerch Bridge, they can block land access uh, along the Crimean coast, Um, and then eventually, once they get uh, close enough or they get long enough munitions that they can attack the Sebastopol naval base as well, the Russians may well hold Crimea, but they won't be able to do anything with it, and it becomes a sort of self-administering prison camp, and that makes starts to make the Russian position very, very difficult indeed. Uh, and it's been quite interesting how as the Ukrainian strikes have developed, uh, you start to see Russians, uh, Russian civilians evacuating um, uh, the Crimea. Finally, Bakhmut, I mean, what I find fascinating about Bakhmut is that um, it, it is developing not just, I mean, it's been a, a bloodbath for, for months, but it's now developing into an internal war between uh, the Wagner group uh, of uh, private military company, private military company and the Russian army. And frankly, you know, if they want to fight each other, we should just, you know, fetch popcorn and leave them to it, because that's a really good outcome, and certainly a good outcome from the point of view of uh, Ukraine. And um, you know, I look forward to look forward to seeing how that develops. Remember that President Putin set an objective in fact setter. A a target that um, uh, would be taken by May the 9th, which is when the Victory Day parade is in uh, in Moscow and and other major cities. Um, Doesn't look like that's happening at the moment, but we'll see. Uh, It is
0: uh, going to be very interesting because this is the second Victory Day uh, where uh, Vladimir Putin, at least so far, uh, does not have victory to show
2: for it and before we go about uh, the whole bulk contracts thing you know i mean we've had multi year procurement contracts for decades and they've worked wonders at guaranteeing the demand side of you know output it's, of course, the supply side that's in question now. But how do you extend the logic of MYP contracts over to missiles and munitions? They appear to have found a way forward, which is just find a mechanism that allows DOD to throw cash at things and you know let the supply side take care of itself, which hopefully should allow for the necessary adjustment in, uh, in production, or at least the, the optimization to get us above, say, 300 Patriot missiles per year or however many javelins or whatever else. Seems to be a fairly promising way forward.
0: Uh, Everybody, thanks so very much for joining me today. Really appreciate it. Always a pleasure having you guys on the program uh, and certainly look forward to having you back on again next week. Have a great week in the meantime and look forward to having everybody in the audience uh, back with us uh, tomorrow for our week ahead program. Thanks so very much. And thanks to Bell for their generous
3: sponsorship. Great to be here, Vago. Thanks. Yeah, thanks as always, Vago. Enjoyed it as always, Vago. Thank you.